0: Hi, Dave Armour here. This is For the Record, program number 1223, French Fascists and the JFK Assassination, part two. This is being recorded on January 21st of the year 2022. Before getting into the main body of the program, three links. They are at the top of each article length written description of Fourth Electric programs on the SpitfireList dot com website. And they are also at the top of each food for thought post on the left hand side of the front page of the SpitfireList dot com website. By the way, if some members of the audience uh stopped visiting the website because of the uh formatting difficulties we have after I was able to get the website switched to being secure. Those have been corrected. In fact, they've been corrected quite some time ago. So uh, don't feel hesitant about visiting the SpitfireList.com website. And those who only listen to the podcasts, more about those in a minute. There is a good deal of written information on the website beyond the audio of the podcasts. Now... Uh, well, speaking of the podcasts, uh, Sister Station WFMU is podcasting the For the Record program. There is a link again at the top of each written description for For the Record programs on the Spitfire website and at the top of each uh, For the Record post uh, uh, A food for thought post to enable you to subscribe to the podcasts that are being made by Sister Station WFNU. So if podcasts are the best way for you to consume the program, and for many people that is the case, again, Sister Station WFMU is podcasting the program, and you can uh, click on that link to subscribe to the podcasts. Also, if you would like to subscribe to the comments that are being made by Perifractal, mostly by Perifractal, our brilliant contributing editor, and often by other intelligent listeners as well. There is, again, a link at the pop of each written description for For the Record and at the pop of each Food for Thought post on the Spitfire com website that will enable you to subscribe to the comments. And last, but most assuredly not least, again, I could not be more pessimistic about uh our future. I believe we are at the twilight of our civilization and I do not think we are going to make it not uh, as a civilization, not as in most cases individuals and very possibly not as a species. Uh, The Sequel or the the logical uh, follow-up to that, I believe, is that people have everything. They have a responsibility to try try to preserve the record of what has happened. Now, in that regard, there is a 32 gigabyte flash drive with all of my roughly 43 years on the air available on it. Basically, everything that is on the Spitfire List popcom website. That includes, by the way a mini-library of old anti-fascist books on easy-to-download PDF files. Uh, I get no money whatsoever from that flash drive, and uh, it is available for a very nominal, tax-deductible fee. So please, uh, f- do get the flash drive. It is imperative, and... Uh, if your survivors are wondering why they're living in a rusted-out Chevy Sport Van and uh, scrambling for uh, mushrooms and fighting it out with former Army Rangers for rat-killing turf, uh, you can explain to them what happened to our civilization. And I don't think it is happening accidentally. At some point in the not-too-distant future, I'm going to tackle uh global warming which i am afraid is being done deliberately not by greedy fossil fuels companies who don't give a flip about anybody but their profit long margin i think that very possibly it is being done deliberately and uh, we'll talk about that if that seems crazy paranoid what have you i wish that I believe that it were. I am afraid that may very well be the case. But that is for the future. Please get the flash drive. I get no money from it. That will enable you to become a repository as an individual for the information on the SpitfireList.com website. Now, uh, this program again is titled, uh, French Fascists and the JFK Assassination Part 2. We are going to be talking about the French Fascists and their relationship with their German counterparts. We won't be talking about the JFK assassination per se in this program, but what we are going to be talking about is the deep political and economic relationships that governed the incorporation of the fascists of World War II into not only the U.S. National Security Establishment, but which helped to cement their further inclusion into the transnational corporate community. One of the things that one learns from studying the reality of fascism, and again, not only the programs and articles on the website, but in particular, information in some of the books that are available in the mini-library of old anti-fascist books on easy-to-download PDF files, will confirm not only that fascism was not an aberration, but that by the period between the world wars, the cartels, international monopolies, had eclipsed the nation state per se as the dominant operational element on the power political and economic scene. Indeed, I speak often about the remarkable and deadly Foreman organization, uh, what they did, and one of the things that makes them so deadly and so remarkable uh, is because really they, they were were and are brilliant strategic thinkers. And to gain control of the world, one must gain control of the international cartel system, and I believe they did. We'll we'll conclude with information about that on this program. But in the broadcast, we are going to be talking about, again, the deep political and economic relationships between the French fascists and their associates elsewhere. Fundamental to an understanding of this discussion is to understand the anti-communist and anti-labor stance of fascism. Indeed, down the road, I'm going to be sometime in the next six months, I hope, I will be tackling the strategic use ...of anti-communism in order to, uh, quote, enslave America, unquote, as voiced by Glenn Pinchback. He was an officer at Fort Sill, Oklahoma, in the 1950s, and in... Monitoring communications of some of the people who eventually participated in the assassination of President Kennedy and who came to light, uh, as a result of Jim Garrison's investigation, New Orleans, BA Jim Garrison's investigation into the JFK assassination. Uh, Glenn Pinchback concluded that, uh, the, there was, quote, a neo-Nazi plot gargantuan in scope To enslave, um, to use anti-communism to enslave America, and we're going to talk about that in future programs. However, uh, in this program, it is the anti-communism per se, which not only led many prominent French industrialists, financiers, aristocrats, and officers in the military, as well as allied uh, political figures, to betray France because they were more worried about socialists and communists in the popular front of the Ambrune than they were their associates. And beyond that, they feared that democracy would enable those elements to prevail on the French political and economic landscape. And they wanted fascism. And so they welcomed the German invasion of 1940. We're going to talk about that Many of those French fascist officers uh, became key elements of the OAS, L'Organisation de l'armée Secrète, that or Secret Army Organization in English. That was a cadre of French officers who hated Charles de Gaulle because he decided to grant independence to the French colony of Algeria they were afraid this would open the door to communism in Algeria and uh, they hated the goal and wanted to kill him uh, as we are going to see uh, Those officers found willing compatriots in the Nazi spy chief or German spy chief post-war, Reinhard Galen. Indeed, in part one of this a series, we spoke about relationships between some of the French fascists who had participated in La Cagoule in the 1930s, the ones who along with other French fascists such as the Croix de uh conspired to overthrow French democracy in 1938. They were unsuccessful. However, they then uh, collaborated with other fascists to subvert the French resistance to the German invasion in 1940 and became key officials with the uh, Vichy fascist collaborationist government. They also, some of them anyway, became key operatives of the French uh, Shalamanya or Charlemagne-Waffen-SS division. They networked with Otto Skorzeny uh, of the SS and with the Galen Organization and the worldwide Nazi diaspora. Both during World War Two in some cases and in particular after World War II. However, that is in summation of some of the things we looked at in part one. I'm going to begin this Program part two by reviewing the information about the relationship between OAS officers and Reinhard Gaylord, some of the motives for doing that, and also note that the OAS officers who were planning on staging a military coup against de Gaulle and establishing a dictatorship in France promised their German associates that they would grant them special economic favors, as we will see. That certainly was not only welcome by the German corporate establishment, but it was something that was already a relationship, that is to say, between large or key French industrial and financial institutions and their associates in Germany. We are going to begin by reviewing an excerpt from one of the really important early biographies of Reinhard Galen, that is called Galen, Spy of the Century by E.H. Cookridge, published in hardcover by Random House in 1971. Galen, reviewing briefly for newer listeners, was Chief of Fremdehera Ost, or Foreign Armies East, the German Eastern Front Intelligence Organization. He then, near the end of the war, became the top... Uh, German intelligence org officer, and then he and his entire organization, including and especially uh, many SS officers, uh, jumped to the fledgling CIA. They then, in turn, became the de facto NATO intelligence organization and the BND, the Bundesnachrichtendienst, while retaining all of their Nazi character and key operatives from the SS. Uh, Former Marine Corps Colonel William Corson, who was the aide to uh, the Church Committee of the U.S. Senate Committee in the 1970s, characterized the Galen organization as, quote, a front for Odessa Nazis, Odessa being one of the post-World War II SS uh, organizations, by the way, one in which uh, Otto Skorzemey played a key part. Now, of Galen and his relationship to the OAS, and also his use of a Nazi collaborator named Maurice Picard as a deep intelligence source within the French security services, we read, The French had found succor in Germany for several years in their fight against Algerian nationalists. But Galen turned against General de Gaulle after he executed a vote FAS and offered independence to the Algerians. He regarded de Gaulle's decision as opening the door to communism in North Africa. Thus, Galen sided with the French generals who staged the revolt against the French president. Galen was in full accord with the politicians such as Georges Bideau and Jacques Soustelle, who had turned against de Gaulle and supported the OAS organization aimed at preventing the independence of Algeria. When Bideau and Sustel and other OAS sought refuge from the arrest from the French police, Galen advised Chancellor Kissinger that there was no reason for refusing their request. Galen had close contacts with leaders of the anti Gaullist rebellion. On June 15th, 1961, General Raoul Savant, SALAM, had a secret meeting with Gil Galen at the via in Schwabing, used by the BNB for clandestine purposes. Earlier, he had already met General Maurice Chalet, the chief author of the General's Putsch in Algiers. Two other OAS leaders, Joseph Ortiz and Pierre Legayab, accused in Paris of having been involved in several attempts at the assassination of General de Gaulle, also found refuge in Germany, with Galen's help according to subsequent disclosures in French newspapers. In supporting the OAS activities and protecting its fugitive leaders, Galen had acted in direct opposition to Comrade Adenauer's avowed policy, which supported de Gaulle. An explanation for Galen's attitude was advanced in the French press. General Salon, and his fellow conspirators had assured Galen that after ousting de Gaulle, a military dictatorship in France under their leadership would offer West Germany important political and economic concessions. The French generals and the big business and finance tycoons who backed them regarded de Gaulle's attitude to the trade unions and left-wing movements as too conciliatory. France was plagued by recurrent strikes and riots. If the goal failed, there was, in their opinion, a real danger of a communist revolution. This must have been Galen's main reason for supporting the OAS. Eventually, the goal made peace with the generals. Galen, however, continued to make sure that he received secret information from Paris. When the question of his continuation in office was still being discussed by Chancellor Kiesinger, as by the way that's Chancellor Kirch, Kiesinger, not to be confused with Henry Kissinger, the American politician, could Kiesinger, by the way, have been in charge of radio propaganda for the Third Reich under Joseph Goebbels before he became Chancellor of Germany. When the question of his confrontation, beginning again, when the question of his continuation in office was still being discussed by Chancellor Kiesinger and his Social Democratic Coalition partners during the winter of 1967 and 68, Another affair in which Galen was deeply involved burst into the newspaper headlines. A high official at the French Ministry of the Interior was arrested, accused of being an agent of a foreign power. He was 61-year-old Maurice Picard, a former chief of the ministry's secret security department and later its civil defense director. At first, it was believed that he had supplied information to Soviet agents, although he was known for his extreme right-wing views. Soon afterwards, Paris newspapers revealed that the, quote, foreign power in question was the German Federal Republic and that Picard had been working for Galen for at least eight years. Indeed, he may already have been connected with Pulak when the disclosures of Galen's spying on Germany's allies were made in 1958. What was even more disturbing was that Picard had been a patentist, unquote, and had collaborated with the Nazis during the war. In 1945, he succeeded in exonerating himself and eventually reached high rank in the government service. And I would note that the anti-labor and anti-communist stance of some of the French OAS generals and their... willingness to uh, form deeper economic bonds with some of their German compatriots, uh, mirrored basically not only the fears of the French fascist milieu in the 1930s that were realized under the Vichy collaborationist government, as we will see, but they also uh, mirrored relationships that already existed. One of the most important of the books that is available in the aforementioned mini-library of old anti-fascist books on the SpitfireList.com website and also the 32-gigabyte flash drive that is available is a remarkable volume called All Honorable Men. That was offered by James Stewart Morton, who was in charge of the Economic Warfare Section of the Antitrust Division of the Department of Justice in World War II. As such, he was in charge with attempting to disrupt the cartel agreements between American and German corporations, both during the war and afterward, and he was unsuccessful. And the story of his quest and how it was frustrated and by whom it was frustrated is available in this remarkable book. And in All Honorable Men, there is discussion of the very... Deep relationship between the German steelmakers, Wokling, and the French Vendel steelmakers as well. There were strong relationships in the Saar region, uh, between the French steel and iron makers in Lorraine and the German coal producers and their steel and iron uh, interests in Germany, and two two of these families were the French Devendel family and the German Wokling family, and that complex relationship uh, is described in all honourable men, and it in many ways exemplifies and encapsulates the relationship which was central to the ascent of fascism in France uh, after the German invasion, and helped to subvert the French resistance to the German invasion. James Stuart Martin writes as follows in All Honorable Men, The horizontal separation of private interests from government policies went even further the struggle of the interwar period was not simply a clash between French interests on the one side and German interests on the other. During the development of the rural Lorraine industrial complex, like-minded industrialists in France and Germany had become directors of jointly owned and jointly controlled financial, industrial, and distributing enterprises. In many cases common views on questions of economic organization, labor policy, social legislation, and attitude toward government had been far more important to the industrialists than differences of nationality or citizenship. After 1870, the interdependence of the French and German iron and steel industries led the owners to work together despite national differences, although the private activities of the French owners were, in many instances, in direct opposition to French public policy. It is curious to note that only the French appeared to have this conflict between public policy and private activities. On the German side, complete coordination seems to have been preserved between national and private interests, between officials of the German Republic, and the leaders of German industry and finance. During World War I, the Devendals, the influential French-German banking and industrial family which headed the French wing of the international steel cartel through the Comité des Forges and whose members had sat in the parliaments of both France, and Germany were able to keep the French army from destroying industrial plants belonging to the German enterprises of the Rokling family. That's capital R-O-C-H-L-I-N-G. These plants were located in the Bouguerre Basin, a Lorraine oil field, then in German control. One more time. These plants were located in the Bouguerre Basin, B-R-I-E-Y, a Lorraine oil field, then in German control. The Wokling family, with their powerful complex of coal, iron, steel, and banking enterprises in Germany, had for generations played in close harmony with the de Vendel family. For a century, the descendants of Christian Wokling have dominated the industry and commerce of the Saar Basin, that's capital S-A-A-R. It was Hermann Wokling who arranged the return of the Tsar to Germany in the plebiscite of January of 1935 by organizing the Deutsche Front, which delivered 90% of the votes to the Nazis. Though 72 members of the Wilkling family have survived two world wars and are still active in the business of the Tsar today, two other members of the family, Hermann and his brother Robert, a major, have been put in charge of production in the Brier Basin. After the war, when the brothers Wilkling moved out of the areas which had to be ceded to France under the Treaty of Versailles, the two of them carried away, probably, a couple of large steel plants. Conceiving this grand larceny to be something in the nature of a war crime, the French government tried the brothers Wilkling in absentia and sentenced them to 40 years in prison. But the German government never would give up the road things to the French. For the next 22 years, the brothers were under this cloud as far as the French government was concerned. On the other hand, as far as the French Steelmakers Association, the Comité des Forges, and in particular the, the, the Wendels who headed the Comité, were concerned it was business as usual, or in this case, business as unusual that prevailed, this last sentence again, because it is in many ways a key, an encapsulation of the relationships that uh, we're talking about here. On the other hand, as far as the French Steelmakers Association, the Comité des Forges, and in particular the Gewendels who headed the Comité were concerned, it was business as usual, or in this case, business as unusual, that prevailed. In the end, even the French government weakened for business purposes though the war crime sentence remained. When it came time for France to build the impregnable Maginot Line, who should be called in to supply steel and technical assistance but the German firm of the brothers, Wilkling? If the French behaved in this as did the Americans during World War II in the case of insurance coverage on war plants, the they doubtless placed plenty of guards to protect the security and secrecy of the Maginot Line construction from the prying eyes of the general public, while the blueprints for the Maginot Line rested safely in the hands of the only people to whom they mattered to wit the German enemy. Now comes the outbreak of World War II. The French army marching into the Tsar during the phony war period in 1939 received orders not to fire on or damage plants of the war criminals, unquote, the brothers Vokling. In 1940 came the German Blitz and the fall of France. The Vichy government passed a decree exonerating the Voklings and canceling their 40-year prison sentences. And next, uh, the uh, German steel industry was, uh, the various German steel makers were united into the Vereinigte Stolbeck, or United Steel Cartel. This is discussed at length in the... Uncle Sam and the Swastika broadcast, uh, reprised in for the record 511. That was actually done on May 23rd of 1980. It goes back almost 42 years. And, uh, the Veronica Stolberger was eventually renamed Thyssen AG. And the Thyssen's key American business partners were the Bush family, several generations of same. Uh, that's Bush, as in George H. W. Bush, uh, who became president and for whom CIA headquarters is named, and George W. Bush, who succeeded his father as president. That is discussed at great length in numerous programs. Of the coalescence of the German steel industry into the Wall Street finance, we read, again from all honorable men, by James Stuart Martin, the mid-twenties were remarkable for German industrial combination. They marked the formation of the United Steelworks in Germany as a combination of the four biggest steel producers, Ernst Ponson, capital P-O-E-N-G-S-G-E-N, Fritz Thyssen, T-H-Y-S-S-E-N, Otto Wolf, W-O-L-F-F, and the others who drew this combine together, had managed to get over $100 million from private investors in the United States. By the way, that was a whole lot more money in the 1920s than it is today. Continuing... Dylan Reed and Company, the New York investment house which bought Clarence, which, beginning again, Dylan Reed and Company, the New York investment house which brought Clarence Dylan, James V. Forrestal, William H. Draper Jr., and others into prominence, floated the United Steelworks bonds in the United States behind a glowing prospectus which declared that the United Steelworks Corporation, the Remy quote, would be the largest industrial unit in Europe and one of the largest manufacturers of iron and steel in the world, ranking in productive capacity second only to the U.S. Steel Corporation. By the way, that was incorporated courtesy of Sullivan and Cromwell, the Dulles law firm. Uh, Now, by the way, Thiessen AG is Thiessen Krupp. It uh, eventually merged with the famous Krupp Armaments. Family of Germany. Continuing, the formation of United Steel gave its management tremendous power in Germany, enough to carry through without delay the organization of the g- domestic. Beginning again, the formation of United Steel. Gave its management tremendous power in Germany, enough to carry through without delay the organization of the German domestic steel cartel, and to guarantee the quote, good behavior, unquote, of all German steel companies in their agreements with foreign firms. Now what we're gonna do next is to uh, access sections of a remarkable book called Triumph of Treason, authored by Pierre Co, C-O-P. This was published in hardcover by Ziff Davis in 1944, and Piakot was the French Minister of Aviation, basically in charge of the French Air Force and French uh, military aircraft production uh, during the social front of the government of Léon Blum. that so was a coalition of uh, what we would call liberal elements, socialists, and included the, the French Communist Party. It was hated by the French financial and industrial concern. Also, the aristocracy hated them, as did much of the officer corps. Uh, this helped to finance or helped to foment, I should say, the unsuccessful Cagulac coup in 1938, and was one of the major sources for support for the German invasion and which helped to subvert the French military resistance to the Germans after the Blitzkrieg in 1940. And in Triumph of Treason, Piacot discusses this as follows. First of all, it was necessary to preserve the armor of the army. General Weygand thundered, that's by the capital W-E-Y-G-A-N-D. General Weygand thundered these words like a command. He used, unconsciously, the same terms that leaders of the French army had invoked during the Dreyfus Affair to prevent public opinion from discovering their critical mistakes. Preserve the armor of the army. French military men, is to secure by every means, including those outlawed by moral law and the penal code, the defense of the military corporation. The question of the responsibility of military leaders in the military defeat of France either had to be evaded or posed in distorted terms. To preserve the honor of the army, unquote, the scapegoats of the defeat, had to be chosen from the political personnel of the Third Republic. That was the Social Front of Jean bon. Brune. And Morgan triumph of treason from nineteen forty-four. In truth, at the end of June of nineteen forty, the question of who was responsible was in everyone's mind. In the two weeks preceding the armistice, I was in touch with the crowd of refugees that slowly and painfully followed the roads southward. In the offices of these pre- beginning in the offices of the prefects, in the town halls, restaurants, and relief centers, I listened to many conversations, received many confidences, heard many opinions. Opinions differed on governmental policy, but all agreed in denouncing the blunders of the French general staff. The country was unanimous, not against Bloom, Bavadier or me, or even against Laval, Pierre-Étienne Flandin, Georges Bonnet, or Jacques Deliaux, but against the generals who had been incapable of understanding the conditions of modern warfare and who were guilty of not knowing the rudiments of their profession. Quote, Just as before 1914 they had prepared for the War of 1870, the people said, Before 1939, they prepared for the war of 1914. And continuing. The severest condemnation came from the soldiers. Lost on the roads in pursuit of dispersed divisions and phantom regiments, thrown together with the refugees whose uncertainties and anxieties they share, the men in uniform cursed the conduct of their readers. They repeated that they never had been schooled in the techniques of modern warfare, especially in the combined use of tanks and aviation, and they were amazed at the ineptness of their commanders in the battles of May and June. They asked why the Meuse and Seine bridges had not been blown up before the arrival of German motorized columns, why Paris had not been defended street by street as the Spanish Republicans had defended Madrid and as the Russians were to defend Stalingrad. And they wanted to know why more than half of the tanks and airplanes had been left in the rear in Orléans, Toulouse, Lyon, North Africa instead of being masked for a counterattack that might have changed everything. They knew that the depots were bursting with cannons, airplanes, and equipment they had needed. One more time, because this is critical in understanding that, because much of the French officer corps were actually sympathetic to the Germans, and a lot of the equipment that was captured by the Germans later was used by them in the war. For example, uh, we have often spoken about the 13th Waffen SS division, the Hanjar division, that was a Balkan uh, Muslim Waffen SS division. Their armored component was largely French tanks that were captured by the Germans after the Blitzkrieg of 1940 in France. And uh, again, it was uh, the, the many of the French officers simply were not. Uh, skill that they combined, the arms, use uh, of the German Wehrmacht and, uh, Riftwaffe, and many of them also were deliberately screwing up the resistance. And the French enlisted men asked. They asked whether Meuse and Seine bridges had not been blown up before the arrival of German motorized columns why Paris had not been defended street by street as the Spanish Republicans had defended Madrid and as the Russians were to defend Stalingrad. They wanted to know why more than half of the tanks and airplanes had been left in the rear, in Orléans, Toulouse, Lyon, North Africa, instead of being massed for a counterattack that might have changed everything. They knew that the depots were bursting with the cannon, airplanes, and equipment they had needed. And again, note the observation uh, up uh, above here that many of the uh, veterans and the refugees were saying, just as before 1914, they had prepared for the War of 1870, the people said, before 1939, they prepared for the War of 1914. One of the ways they did that was the uh, aforementioned construction of the Maginot Line. That would have been great for World War I, but the Germans simply went around it. Plus, they knew about how to attack the Maginot Line when the time came, because the blueprints for the forts in the Maginot Line uh, lay with the Roeckling family, the cartel partners of the Devendals who had been selected to construct the Maginot Line. And again, that relationship, the Gavendel lopling relationship, is exemplary of the relationships we're talking about here. Continuing with uh, Triumph of Treason by Pierre Coe. One began to hear quoted the disturbing remarks with which General Vagon had tried to persuade the cabinet to ask for an armistice, that he needed his tanks to master the revolutionary elements in France if it should become necessary. That is to say, the commander-in-chief of the French army preferred fighting French workers to throwing all his forces against the German troops. The soldiers praised the bravery of certain leaders, Giraud, Lestien, De Gaulle, Luchin, Gervart de Tassigny, and many others, but they declared that most of the officers had been the first to flee. Quote, They left in automobiles, And we left on foot, unquote, they said, talking about those officers, faithful followers of L'Action Française, Je suis partout, Gringoire, and other fascist newspapers, which had said in various forms during the winter that this was a democratic war and consequently did not interest them. Speaking of the soldiers... Their anger was legitimate. It was inexplicable after all that the general staff, after deciding to abandon Paris and thus opening the east to the Germans, had not ordered the troops which occupied the Maginot Line to fall back toward the south. More than a million men, the best of the French army, were caught in the German trap, a disaster which could have been prevented by an order from General Vagon One more time. Their anger was legitimate. It was inexplicable, after all, that the general staff, after deciding to abandon Paris and thus opening the east to the Germans, had not ordered the troops which occupied the Maginot Line to fall back toward the south. More than a million men, the best of the French army, were caught in a German trap, a disaster which could have been prevented by an order from General Weygand been talking about uh, the composition of the Vichy government by the very French fascists who had tried to overthrow the government in 1938, including the Cagou, and uh, who then uh, subverted the French resistance, military resistance, to the German invasion. By its composition, the government of Vichy was representative not of the French people, but of the general staff. Its first Cabinets were headed by Pepin, the spiritual leader of the French army, the man who had played the most important part in the preparation of the war and in the formation of the general staff. And these cabinets were composed largely of members of the general staff. General Végan, General Pouhaut, the PUJO, P-U-G-O, Admiral Berwin, General Hunsinger, General Béjolet, and Admiral Paton. As the French proverb says, the wolves do not eat each other. And then talking about the Kagglebar fascists, uh, people such as, uh, Jean-Robert Fillot, uh, people like, uh, Jacques Coez and others whom we spoke about in our first, uh, in the previous program and who turned up, and some of them anyway, in Dallas on November 22nd, 1963. That's Dallas, Texas, by the way returning again to try the treason. To their astonishment, the French people saw pass slowly fill the most important posts of authority in local, departmental, and central administrations with men who had taken part in the Cagular plot, with those who had repeated the infamous refrain, rather Hitler than Léon Blum, unquote, and even with some of those who, before or during the war, had been arrested for treasonable domestic and foreign activities. The people were applying to the government the old proverb, Tell me who your friends are, and I'll tell you who you are. Unquote. They were alarmed to see Vichy employed for its most delicate missions, Ferdinand de Brimont, Jean Montigny, Jean Goy, Jean Luchère, and Gaston Henri A., members of the Comité France à Manure, an organization which before the war had been inspired and financed by Otto Abetz, A-B-E-T-Z, after 1940, Hitler's ambassador in Paris. They learned with fury that on the night of the armistice, when France was in mourning, Frenchmen and French women of the aristocracy, high finance and industry, had drunk at Bordeaux to the defeat which had ridden them of the nightmare of democracy and the popular front. The people understood that the fifth column in France, as in Spain, had opened the door to Hitler's agents, and they watched with awe the agents of the fifth column become masters of France, the France of Pétain, Weygand, and Laval and uh, of the activity of this fifth column in France and how similar it was to the operations of similar organizations in other countries, the activity of the fifth column will not be considered by historians a special phenomenon of French public life, but as an integral part of fascism. The fifth column has appeared wherever fascism has tried to gain a foothold. It was at work in Spain, Austria, and Czechoslovakia before it turned up in France, and there are fifth columns in the United States, India, and Latin America. By the fifth column, I do not mean only spies and licensed traitors. The fifth column includes all who, by accepting fascist doctrines or methods, become the conscious or unconscious accomplices of a foreign power. Treason and complicity have their degrees and nuances. The general staff of the fifth column consists primarily, and beginning again, the general staff of the fifth column consists principally of ambitious men who try to seize power by destroying or paralyzing the democratic system. The body of the fifth column is composed of people who think they are saving their country from the, quote, communist menace, unquote, or from, quote, British imperialism, unquote, and who do not even know in whose favor their actions are operating. Though hate of the Popular Front beginning again, through hate of the Popular Front, good Frenchmen or men who consider themselves as such served Hitler gratuitously by doing work to which they would never have consented had they been offered payment. Why? because they detested the republic and democracy more than they loved France. They accepted the idea of the defeat as a necessary evil which permitted them to rid France of the democratic system and to keep in power in the neighboring countries the fascist dictators whom they considered solely capable of maintaining order in Europe. They then became unconscious collaborators of these dictators. They thought they were doing their duty in letting Hitler free France from the, quote, Judeo-Masonic, unquote, influence, and Europe from the communist peril. These people had never read Marx, considered the, quote, Marxist danger, unquote, more immediate than the Hitlerian danger. They preferred the risks of an entente with a victorious Hitler to the risks of a democratic victory that would cause the collapse of the fascist dictators in Europe. Considering Hitler in Germany, Mussolini in Italy, and Franco in Spain as knights of an anti-Bolshevist crusade, they became precursors and later partisans of, quote, collaboration with Hitler's new order, unquote, unquote. enough evidence has been published already to prove that France was stabbed in the back by those who saw in Hitler the new St. George who would slay the communist dragon. When Pierre Lazareff, L-A-Z-A-R-E-F-F, former editor-in-chief of Paris Slough, the French newspaper with the widest circulation, reports royalists as saying, quote, we need the defeat to wipe out the republic, unquote, when envy bois former editor of the Petit Parisien, the most influential political newspaper, reports Great Industrialists and... and Beginning again. When Émile Blois, former editor of the Petit Parisien, the most influential political newspaper, reports great industrialists admitting to him during the winter of 1939-40 that a plot had been organized to replace the democratic regime, quote, by a government of authority, unquote, and that this plot presupposed a Nazi victory. We have every reason to accept the affirmations which tally so perfectly with events. And um, Cole goes on to say, no, France received no exceptional treatment from Hitler and fascism. A general plan maybe the activity of the fifth columns all over the world. All were recruited from the same circles and had the same social and political composition. The object was the same everywhere to divide and unnerve public opinion, weaken the resistance of the regime, and prepare a governmental group ready to execute a fascist coup d'etat at the moment of trouble or confusion. The methods were the same everywhere. Cultivation of the seeds of disunity which normally exist among free men and in free countries, exaggeration and inflammation of all racial and religious conflicts, all class rivalries, all political antagonisms, gradual conversion of opposition and dissent into hate, creation of an atmosphere of civil war. The means used were the same everywhere. Campaigns of calumny against the democratic leaders capable of opposing fascism. They are Blum in France, Roosevelt in the United States, the development of antisemitism because anti Semitism is the first manifestation of racism and contains in petto the whole doctrine of Hitler, use of the fear of communism among the middle classes because anti communism is the best way to prevent the union of all. Anti-fascist forces, one more time. Use of the fear of communism among the middle classes because anti-communism is the best way to prevent the union of all anti-fascist forces. This last device has been the most efficacious. The fear of communism has become in European and American politics of recent years a much more important factor than communism itself. Uh, This last sentence again, I think, by the way, one can readily ascribe the same motivation to the forces that killed JFK and also eventually killed Martin Luther King and Robert Kennedy, JFK's brother, and done a whole lot of other things. Uh, JFK was considered frankly a card-carrying red by the forces that were, uh, in ascendance at that time, or ascend- ascending at that time, and are dominant today. This last device has been the most efficacious. The fear of communism has become, in European and American politics of recent years, a much more important factor than communism itself. And we're going to conclude the reading with a sec- section from Martin Bormann, Nazi in Exile by Paul Manning. That too, along with All Honorable Men, is available in the books for download section of the stipfirelist.com website and is also available on the flash drive. And speaking of the fifth column within France and the fact that it did not disappear at the end of World War Two. Along with the unease, the fact that France has lingering and serious social and political ailments is a residue of World War II and of an economic occupation that was never really terminated with the withdrawal of German troops behind, beyond the Rhine, one more time. Along with the unease, the fact that France has lingering and serious social and political ailments is a residue of World War II and of an economic occupation that was never really terminated with the withdrawal of German troops beyond the Rhine. It was this special economic relationship between German and French industrialists that made it possible for Friedrich Flick to arrange with the De Vendel Steel Firm in France for purchase of his shares in his Ruhr, coal combine for $45 million, which was to start him once more on the rural road back to wealth and power after years in power. in beginning uh, It was this special economic relationship between German and French industrialists, that made it possible for Friedrich Fleek to arrange with the Vendel steel firm in France for purchase of his shares in his rural, in his Ruhr coal combine for 45 million dollars, which was to start him once more on the road back to wealth and power after years in prison following his conviction at Nuremberg. And again, I think the same Basic motivation that drove the French Fifth Column to collaborate with the German invasion and with the Odishi fascist collaborationist government drove the fascist collaborators in the U.S. and around the world to kill JFK. In our first program, we took a look at some of the coalitions that killed JFK. We took a look at members of La Cagoule, such as Jean-Paul uh, Robert Fillot, one of the top Cagoule assassins who eventually ascended to the position of top Cagoule assassin. He then became a key member of the D.C. government, joined the French SS. He networked in the French Charlemagne Division with, among others, Pierre Lafitte, L-A-F-I-T-T-E, who may very well have been, it certainly appears, that he was a key manager of the JFK assassination and was reporting in this regard to Otto Skorzeny, the SS commando, SS colonel, who was one of the linchpins of what freelance Danish journalist Henrik Kruger referred to as the international fascista. We have spoken about Cougar's analysis in many programs, uh AFA program number four, AFA program number nineteen, AFA program number twenty two, about uh, Apos uh we came back to it in uh AFA program number twenty nine as well. One of the things we noted was that Otto Skorzemie's paladin mercenary group uh, and mercenary training camps were frequented by some of the OAS conspirators such as uh, the OAS commando Lieber Jean Svetre S-O-U-E-T-R-E who was in Dallas, Texas on November 22nd, 1963 and was kicked out of the U.S. Uh, on that day. Uh, Otto Skorzymi in Madrid, in Spain, uh, had an office of his Taliban mercenary group, which was administered for him by a gentleman named Gerhard Hartmut von Schubert, a veteran of Joseph Goebbels' propaganda ministry. Uh, it shared an office, uh, with a branch of the U.S. Central Intelligence Agency. It is inconceivable that the Paladin Mercenary Group would not have been an operational ally of the CIA if there had not been that shared office. I mean, you just don't share an office with uh, uh, the CIA unless you are working with the CIA. And for it is I think in many ways the information in the Great Heroin Coup by Henry Kruger about the International Fascista, which included not only OAS veterans, but some of their opposite number from the SAC or the Baboos, the Bible ones, uh, SAC was the Sabis. Daction Civique, which was put together by de Gaulle to combat the OAS, uh, veterans of Kourou, the anti fascist or uh, the anti-Castro organization, I should say, uh, veterans of Operation Forty against Castro, uh the Agente Press, uh, Franco veterans, uh, Third Reich veterans, uh, veterans of the Portuguese PIDE under the Portuguese fascist dictator Enrique Salazar. They combined in what Kruger terms the International Fascista and of Scrozini, who is described as running the French Secret Service, uh, me, as running the Spanish intelligence service almost single handedly by Henrik Kruger, is right there in the mix. So again, I think I hope that in this two program series The scope and the sweep of fascism is evident. And bearing in mind that John Foster Dulles of Sullivan and Cromwell was Secretary of State under Eisenhower, and then his brother Alan Dulles and fellow Sullivan and Cromwell law partner with CIA director is front and center for this coalescence, as was uh, Frank Wisner of the OSS and the OPC from Carter, Levy, and Milburn, the former general counsel for the Dow Jones Corporation. Anyway, we are all out of time. This concludes For the Record Program number 1120, excuse me, for the Record Program number 1223, French Fascists and the Assassination of JFK Part 2, being recorded on January 21st of the year 2022. I'm Dave Emory. Have fun.